We're in Exodus chapter 22 this week. Oh Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to get into your word again. Lord, I thank you for the amazing truth and wisdom that we find in it. And I just thank you that everything that we read points to you. And we just pray we can learn more about you as we read through the book of Exodus in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week we talked about the regulations for slavery. And we asked the question, does God want people to be slaves or is God for slavery? And we said, no, he's not. So then why does God give regulations and laws regarding slavery? Well, we talked about the fact that just like God does not condone or agree with divorce, God actually hates divorce. It says in Malachi 2.16, For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And Matthew 19.8, it says, He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So God didn't plan for people to be slaves. He didn't plan for people to divorce. It's not his perfect will. And that's the thing with slavery too. It's not what God wants. It's human nature. And it was part of their culture of all the countries around at the time. And so God gives these regulations to control slavery and to protect both the slaves and the masters, just like the divorce regulations were to protect the parties involved there too. So overall, the laws we looked at so far show that these laws are common sense and they're fair and they protect the rights of both men and women. And remember that women back then had no rights. And so this was revolutionary. So we're going to keep covering some property laws, moral and ceremonial principles, justice for all, the law of the Sabbath and the three annual feasts and the angel and the promises. That's in the next two chapters. Whether we get through it all today, I don't know. We'll see how we go. But what I wanted to point out before we get into our passage today, which is Exodus 22, is what's been interesting for me, and it's pricked my attention, is the fact that these are physical laws for a physical nation or kingdom, and there's parallels between these physical laws and promises and curses to the spiritual. So we can actually learn a lot about what we have in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, in Ephesians 1.6 says we're seated in the heavenly places, right? So the blessings, for one, are not physical, they're spiritual, whereas the blessings in the law of Moses are all physical, like, you know, good crops, no sickness, all that kind of thing. And the other thing is that they're not on earth, they're in heaven. The blessings are in heaven. So the heavenly, it says, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So for example, just to get the idea of this, God promised the nation of Israel peace, and that's the absence of war. That's a physical blessing. Just like in Australia, we're not at war with a country at the moment. So if they were obedient, it wouldn't matter what was happening in their surrounding nations. It doesn't matter if there was a big world power who wanted to attack them, God wouldn't let them. God says, no, you're not touching my people. And what is a a parallel for us today in our spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of heaven? Well, I can experience peace in my heart despite troubling times, despite circumstances, which are pretty tough. So John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So, God promised the nation of Israel victory over their enemies, the surrounding nations, if they were obedient. And what does God promise us? Victory over our sin, flesh, my greatest enemy, the world, and Satan, if I'm obedient to him. 1 John 5.4 For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And God promised them victory over their enemies, physical enemies, as they went into the promised land a bit later on. Well, what are our enemies? What, what's the promise for us? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 6. So this is talking about our warfare. Back in the times of Joshua, they had physical nations, and they had to have faith in God to defeat physical nations. Today, we don't have physical nations to destroy as Christians. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, or physical things. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or physical, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So, our victory is not a physical one, it's a spiritual one. So, I just wanted to point out a bad doctrine is pretty common, is the prosperity gospel. And I was at a church. They were saying when they were claiming the promises that we have as Christians, that they were actually claiming some of the laws of Moses, physical healing, uh, physical financial prosperity, things like that. Now, the problem with this is they fail to understand that all the physical blessings and curses are types or shadows of the reality that we have in Christ. So just like the pastor was a type or shadow of the crucifixion, Jesus dying and rising again to pay the penalty for our sins, so victory over enemies by faith in God in the promised land is a picture or shadow of the Christian's victory over sin and the world and death. So what is physical health and well-being a picture or shadow of? What's the New Testament equivalent to this promise, this physical promise? Well, first of all, I'd like to point out that there's many Christians who are poor or who die of cancer. They have mental illnesses, physical disorders, allergies, genetic diseases, just like the general population. So if you claim that the Bible says that if we, as Christians, are faithful and obedient to God, then he will physically heal us and give us good health, then you have to assume that those Christians who are suffering are all disobedient or or unfaithful to God including the Apostle Paul and some of his friends, because God didn't heal him either. So you're following the logic there? Secondly, the scriptures make it clear that Christians will continue to suffer the effects of the curse until we receive our new or glorified bodies. Romans chapter 8, here's another one you can look up. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 23. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope... The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Verse 22, For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth 
right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. So Romans 8 is telling us, is teaching us that Christians will not be free from the effects of sin, the curse, until we receive our glorified bodies. Sickness and disease are a part of the curse. So back to our question. So what does physical health and well-being as a promise to the Israelites, as the shadow, what is it a shadow or type of? I believe that the answer is it's a picture of a healing for us from the eternal effects of sin. So we can go to Isaiah 53. One of the verses that's often used to promote the teaching that everyone should be healed is Isaiah 53 verse 4. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs. And that literally means sicknesses. And carried our sorrows. And that literally means pains. And so the idea goes, they teach that Jesus bore our sicknesses and pains on the cross so we shouldn't have to physically suffer now from diseases. But is this the correct interpretation of this verse? Is there anything in the New Testament that can clarify this prophecy for us? Remember Isaiah, this chapter in particular is a prophecy. Well, thankfully there is. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 to 17, this verse is quoted. It's applied to Jesus healing people while he was on the earth, while he was physically present with them doing his ministry. So verse 16 and 17 in Matthew chapter 8 says, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So the Holy Spirit here, through the book of Matthew, is applying this prophecy of Isaiah to Jesus' earthly healing ministry and not to his atoning work of death on the cross. He healed that it might be fulfilled. So that's the idea here. So this did not occur on the cross, but before in his public ministry. The purpose of the healings was to affirm that he is God. It's to convince people that he is God and that his message was from God. So, since this scripture was fulfilled and Jesus healed people prior to the cross, before his body was broken and his blood shed, then this scripture is not fulfilled at the cross and should not be used as part of the atonement. It does not say he died for infirmities and diseases, but rather that he took them and bore them. So, again, this means that Christ took away their sicknesses by removing them, by having compassion on the people, taking their sufferings, and carrying them away before his death. So this was fulfilled before Calvary, when Jesus was ministering to the people. So being healed does not just mean physical healing. It can also be a reference to, like in Matthew thirteen fifteen, healing people who are brokenhearted. And then there's also the healing from sin, the effects of sin. Isaiah 53, 5 is quoted three times in the New Testament. 
I'll just read the one from Matthew thirteen fifteen. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. So these verses are talking about repentance and salvation. The second part of that verse in Isaiah 53.5 reads, But he was wounded or pierced for our transgressions, that's breaking the law, and he was bruised, which means crushed or punished, for our iniquities, which are our sins. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So the context of by his stripes we are healed is sin. We are healed of the effects of sin. Pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. But some might say, by whose stripes you are healed, it refers to physical healing. Well, there is, again, another New Testament reference to give us more understanding about this phrase. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. So this, by whose stripes you were healed, is specifically referring to Jesus bearing our sins on the cross, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And it's not referring to physical healing. The Bible states that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And if you keep reading through Isaiah, we're not going to today, I want to get back into Exodus, but if you keep going through Isaiah, you'll see that the primary concern is not of our physical sicknesses, but the spiritual healing or the eternal effects of sin. All right, then what is healing in the New Testament? What does God say about it? Well, yes, we are told to pray for healing in the book of James. But according to God's will, there's no blanket promise for healing in the New Testament. That's a physical thing. We're in a spiritual kingdom. I like Matthew 26:39. It says, He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. So when we pray for healing, we should always remember that God uses suffering for our good to conform us to the image or character of his Son. That's Romans eight twenty eight twenty nine, And as a witness to those around us of his grace and power working in our lives. And I'd like you to read another verse with me. Uh, if you look up 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. This is Paul. He just have this revelation of heaven this out-of-body experience, and he says, he continues on, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, Paul prayed for his friends to be healed, but God sometimes said no. Paul prayed for himself to be healed, but God sometimes said no. 
It all depends on what God's plan is, and we need to be submissive to that plan. So when people say that if you're a good boy or a good girl, then God will bless you physically, just like he did Israel, that's the law of Moses. That's the old covenant. So we don't want to be in the old covenant, we want to be in the new covenant. When you think about it, what makes that any different from those who maintain that Christians must keep the Sabbath or must be circumcised? It's the law of Moses. Colossians 2, 16-17 says, So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Now, why am I spending so much time with this, are you wondering? I don't like talking against things. I don't do it very much. But people who believe in the prosperity teaching and get really involved with that, they get very frustrated when they're not healed. And they get very harsh and very cruel with people who don't get healed. They can lose their faith in God because they think that God isn't keeping his promises Or, on the other hand, they can accuse others of a lack of faith. Now, I was at a horse training event, and I was really keen to witness. And so I brought up the topic of the gospel, and I was shut down very quickly. These ladies, they weren't Christians, and one of their older friends, they were in their 40s or 50s, one of their friends had just died of cancer, and this friend was a Christian. And they'd watched the way these people who believed in prosperity doctrine had treated this lady she was dying of cancer and they were saying if you just had faith god would heal you and it was just disgusting and these non-christians were just turned off because of what these people did to their friend and that's because of this false belief that the blessings we get as christians are physical so we're going to go through exodus and we're going to see there's a lot of physical blessings and curses but We need to think about that and we need to say, what is the new spiritual version of that? What is the reality? What is the most important part? And the other story that I've heard, someone had a sore back. They'd been taught this doctrine that healing is for today, that everyone should be healed because the preachers quoted these verses from the Old Testament. We read one of them today if we get there. So they're focused on just getting healing. God promised he would heal me. And asking and asking and asking, getting people to pray for him and again and again and again. And what happened is that their back would get better for a bit. Oh, God's healed me. And then he'd get really disappointed because the pain would come back. And he'd go, oh, I'm not healed. You know, God's let me down. And his faith was kind of shaken. So that's one part of it. But the main thing for me is that they're missing the point. They're not focusing on what Christ has already given them, the spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. So we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. This world, this physical realm, is not our home. It should not be our focus. The spiritual should be. Like Abraham, he had his eyes on a kingdom which is not of this world. So this is not just limited to healing or financial prosperity. Like the people who say you must keep the Sabbath, their focus is on the physical keeping of a day of rest, and that takes their mind off, I believe, the rest that we have in Christ, which is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. So without wanting to hurt anyone or 
rubbing it the wrong way. I just felt I needed to say that. So I, I pray that you will take what I've said and think about it, meditate on the scriptures, and just see if what I've said is true. So let's get into Exodus chapter 22. And some of these laws are for property. Now the first ones are. So who's been to jail before? Did you know that in Israel, no one went to jail? It was such an awesome place. No one did anything wrong. Mm. So in the nation of Israel, there was no jail. So what we're going to read here is how God dealt with crimes and sin in that culture. So Exodus 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So if I steal your ox or lamb to eat or sell, I have to give you fivefold for an ox or cow and fourfold for a sheep, which means five times as much or four times as much. So this is all about the principle of restitution. So as I said before, they knew nothing of incarceration or imprisonment. They just had to pay back. Now, just some statistics which I found interesting. The Northern Territory has the highest imprisonment rate of all the states in Australia and they have 958 persons per 100,000 adults, which is about 1%. Uh, Followed by WA, which has 342 persons per 100,000 adult people, which is about 0.3%. So that's 0.3% of all the people in WA are in prison. And in the June 7, 2018, average for the entire nation is 216 persons per 100,000 adults in Australia. So it's 0.2%. What about the US? Or well, they beat us here. Their average is 655. So that's per 100,000 people. That's 0.6% of their entire population is in prison. But in God's economy, in this culture, Justice was not based on incarceration or imprisonment. It's based on restitution. So I think there's a lot of benefits in this. Now, what would stop someone from stealing? It's a consequence, but if you didn't have any money and you stole something, then who had to pay that money back? Your family. Your family had to. And if you couldn't do it yourself, you would be a slave. So... There was tremendous pressure to obey the law because the consequences were really quite harsh. If you're already poor and your family was poor, then they'd have to pay back like five oxen. That's a lot of money. That's your livelihood gone. So, Verse 2. If a thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. And this is at night time. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So again, no going to jail for stealing, but you need to make it good. You need to restore. Now, if this thief broke in at night and the owner of the house killed him, there's no repercussions there. But if it happened in the daylight, then there is a repercussion. There is a consequence for the owner of the house. Well, maybe... This is just my opinion, but maybe because it's dark, you wouldn't know if that person was there to, to try and kill you. 
is dark, you don't know if their intention is to kill you or to rob you. And so if you defend yourself, then no one can say one way or the other. But in the daytime, you've got a better chance of understanding, is this person just here to, to rob me or is this person here to kill me? Do I need to defend myself or do I just need to get this guy out of my house? Verse 4. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall restore double. So if he's walked out of the house and he's down the road and, whoops, we caught you, I've only got to pay back two. Now, in Numbers, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, it says, If a thief's conscience bothered him and he confessed without being apprehended, he only had to pay back 20% above what he took. So give back the animal plus a small donation. Verse 5, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. So if I let my animals graze in your vineyard or in your field, then I have to make good from my field, my produce, which is fair. Uh, Verse 6, fire. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain, standing grain or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire, he who started the fire, shall surely make restitution. So burning off, this happens a lot around here, and the fire gets out of control. The person who lights a fire has to pay for the damage done. That makes you be more careful. I'm pretty sure, back then, there were no insurance companies. So if your property was burnt by somebody else, you couldn't just you know, file a claim my property, my field was burnt, I've lost all this tens of thousands of dollars of crop, you know, I'm putting insurance claim. No, the person who lit the fire had to make good on that loss. Now, an application on fire and fruit. The book of James tells us that the tongue is like a fire and a good deal of good fruit is burned by activities of the tongue, or what we say with our tongue. So when we poke around in someone else's business or we say something nasty to a family member or a friend or someone in church or at work or whatever it might be, then I think this principle of restitution is important. If we say something with a tongue which hurts somebody, how do we make restitution? Well, we have to restore the fruit. How do we do that? Well, we go to the people that we've gossiped about or we've hurt and we do whatever we can to replace that which was lost due to the fire when we spoke in a way which we shouldn't have spoken. So if you gossip about someone, go and tell people the truth. Hey, look, I told you this about this person, but I'm making good now, I'm making restitution. I actually lied about that. That wasn't true what I said. I need you to forgive me. That's restitution. That's a way we can do that even today. All right. Verse 7 and 8. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. So, if someone gives me something to mind while they go on holidays and it gets stolen from me, then I'll say, look, I didn't have anything to do with the loss of this thing. It was stolen. I'm sorry I did my best to look after it. Then it goes before the judges, and the judges will make a decision whether you need to make good or not to see whether you're actually the thief. Because you might say that I didn't touch it, but you might have. 
That's why they have that rule there. Uh, verse 9, for any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whomever the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. So if I'm having an argument with my friend, and I say, that car is mine, and the other person says, no, that car is mine, and we're arguing over it, back in that culture, they go before the judges, and the judges will determine who that car belongs to, and the person who lost will have to pay double the value of two cars to the person who won. Paul picks up on this principle in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, If something is wrong between you and a brother, you are to go to the church rather than to court. Why? Because it's a poor witness to the world. We shouldn't be arguing about all these things. We should be willing to accept the loss, especially amongst Christian brothers and sisters. Verse 10, If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep and it dies, is hurt or driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. So if a, if it dies by a disease or it gets hurt or it's driven away or something like that, then the owner, if he was responsible, did everything he could, basically he's off the hook. It's just one of those things that happens. Verse 12 But if, in fact, it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. So if it's stolen, you have to make restitution because you should have been more careful to protect it. That's why I think about it. If it's torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence and he shall not make good what was torn. So if the animal is killed, like if I'm looking after your chickens, if someone else's dog eats them, then I don't need to make good for that because it wasn't my fault. 14. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. So if you borrow an excavator or something like that and you're using it and you damage it, then you're liable. You've got to make it good. But the next verse says, if its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. It was hired. It came for its hire. If the owner of the excavator is driving the excavator and he damages the excavator while you're hiring it, then you're not liable. Now we go into some moral and ceremonial principles. This is about um, marriage and that. Verse 16, if a man entices a virgin, so this isn't rape, this is enticement. If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. So, in God's economy, in God's eyes, the point at which a man seduced a woman was the point at which he essentially said, I do. I want you to be my wife. Because once he did that, once he lied with her, In God's eyes, they're married. They were joined. Once there was sexual involvement, he's married. But if the woman's father didn't want that man in his family, he could refuse to give him his daughter, yet the man would still be required to pay the dowry, and that's a fairly large amount of money. So it is going to cost him. His lack of self-control is going to cost him. Verse 18, You shall not permit a sorceress to live, 
So basically, we want to get rid of the occult and witchcraft because it's very, very serious. It's deadly. Verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. I haven't really ever thought about doing that, and not many people have, but people still do it. It's kind of weird, but God says no, and they'll be put to death, should be put to death. 20 and 21, he who sacrifices to any God except the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. That's fairly self-explanatory. Verse 21, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. It's good to remember to show compassion, because remember that we were out of God's family, and God brought us in. We were strangers, but God showed mercy to us, so we need to show mercy to others as well. And now we start to really see God's heart for people here. In verse 22, You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. These are the weak people. You find it hard to stand up for their rights. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. So God's got a special spot in his heart for those who are widows or fatherless, for the orphans. He wants us to protect them. So that's what we as a church should be doing, looking after the widows and the orphans, putting them in families, as the psalm says. Verse 25, If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not charge him interest. So that's called usury, charging someone interest. And back then, if you're an Israelite lending money to another Israelite, you're not allowed to charge interest. They had to pay it back, but only the amount they borrowed. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. So again, we see God's compassion, God's care for fellow man. He wants us to be gracious. So if someone put their coat down as a collateral for their loan, because that's all they had, like their coat was what kept them warm at night, God wants the person who gave them the loan, who has their coat as collateral, to give the coat back at night time so they can wear it, so they don't get cold. So we need to be gracious towards others. Verse 28, you should not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Uh, Paul in Romans tells us that we should show honor to those who rule over us. And other verses in the New Testament say we should pray for our leaders. Verse 29, you shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. We are not to delay the tithe. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 says, concerning the collections For the saints, on the first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. So that's God's will for us too, to give. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Now, it's interesting because at the time, there was no Levitical priesthood. That came later. That comes in Numbers, chapter 1. So the idea, the way I understand it, 
is that the firstborn son would be like a, a priest. That's what some people have said. It could be the oldest person in the house would be the priest of the family or the, the oldest guy. Verse 30, Likewise you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. So this is a firstborn animal from a cow or a sheep or, or a goat. And the tendency might be to extend the time a lamb or ox was to remain with its mother. So God said, no, just seven days old, it comes to me, sacrifice to me, the firstborn. And that obviously goes back to the Exodus, where God killed the firstborn in Egypt. That's where this firstborn thing started. And 31, and you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. That's very interesting. You shall be holy men to me. And we can put women in there too. That's okay. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. So in that culture, you could tell if someone was holy or how holy someone was by their diet, what they ate. So how do we transfer this into our New Testament spiritual kingdom? Well, we can think of it as what we allow our minds to feed upon. Okay, It's not what we eat physically, it's what we eat with our mind, uh, spiritually. So all too often we take in that which has been torn, that which is violent. You think about what we watch on TV, computer games and all that kind of stuff. But we're to be holy. We're not to partake of that which is either hurtful to us or to others. And we can read about it, we can watch it, we can talk about it. And Philippians 4.8 is a good guideline for this. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So we want to be holy people. I'll just go into a little bit in chapter 23. Now, one of the principles in the Old Testament is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We've kind of covered that already last week. And this is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. So, is this telling us that there's two gods? The God of the Old Testament? Retribution. He knocked your tooth out, you knock his out. But Jesus, oh, he's kind, he's nice. Is there, are there two different gods? No. It's not that Jesus needs to tell the Father to calm down, you know, show mercy to these people. No, it's not like that at all. The seeming disparity or the seeming contradiction is because Jesus is addressing the individual. But back in Exodus, it's addressing the culture. For a culture to work, there must be boundaries and regulations. So without boundaries and rules and regulations, people would not survive. Can you imagine if there was no law against stealing, if there's no law against rape, if there's no law against murder, if there's no law against kidnapping or drugs or anything like that, what our society would be like? It'd be terrible. But personally, where to leave that retribution to the government, to the police force, to the judges? We're not to do it ourselves. We're to forgive. 
Uh, verse 1 in Exodus 23, you should not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. This is perjury, you're lying in court. Verse 2, you should not follow a crowd to do evil. Now this is tough, because a lot of the time when people are going on their way, often the mob is wrong. And it's difficult to be that lone voice sometimes and say, no, I disagree. Verse 2, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. So even if it seems unpopular, we need to testify. Verse 3, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. So some might say, oh, that guy's poor, so let him off. God says, no, don't do that. A few verses later, verse 6, it says, you shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. So this is the opposite. This is taking advantage of the poor. So verse 3 says, do not show favor to the poor because they're poor. And verse 6 says, do not take advantage of the poor because they're poor. So basically, judgment must be fair. It doesn't matter about people's social status or financial status. Everyone gets the same deal. Everyone gets the same fairness. Verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. So. If you see your enemy's car beginning to roll down a hill, put the handbrake on for him. Okay? Loving your enemies. Verse 5. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you refuse to help it, you shall surely help him with it. So, is this just the rescue of an animal? Or is it more? I think it's more. God wants restoration between people. If we know that our enemy is burdened or troubled, it could be a troubled marriage, it could be a business under stress, we can help them through prayer. We can come alongside and we can help through prayer. If we have people in our lives that have hurt us or they might not be very nice people and are hurting other people, then the best thing we can do is pray for them. Jesus said, do not curse those who will persecute you. Pray for them. Matthew 5.44 Lift the burden off your enemy through prayer and you'll be set free yourself of the burden of hostility and bitterness. So we forgive, we help our enemy. Notice it says in verse 5, If you see the donkey of one who hates you. This is like the Good Samaritan in the Old Testament. Verse 6 You should not pervert the judgment of the poor in his dispute. We've talked about that. Verse 7 Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. So as a society, as a cultural law, God says he's not going to justify the wicked. But when it comes to individual sinners, it's a different story. Romans 4 tells us that God is the one who justifies the ungodly. And that's great news for us. But the law needs to be there, rock solid, with consistency. It needs to be consistently acquitting the righteous and condemning the guilty. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. So if you're a judge or in a lawman or a policeman, whatever, then make sure that you're honest. Don't take a bribe. And verse 9, Also you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And we've been through this before. But it repeats it. Why does God repeat it? Because it's important. Prejudice. 
Who knows what prejudice is? When we have things against a certain people group and strangers can come in, you know, immigration, all that kind of stuff, all right? So this is a very practical command. Do not oppress a stranger. And verses 10 to 12, Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you should do. So basically, the seventh year was a time where it would be let rest, it would lie fallow, and whatever was produced would be given to the poor. So there was another way that God would bless the poor in the land. Remember Ruth? That's an extension of this. So six days you should do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. So the law is not demanding. God is actually wanting everyone to succeed, but not at the expense of our health or the well-being of others. Jesus said, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. So, back in Exodus 20, verse 10, where God gave the commandments, God mandated one day off in seven, so that one's sons and daughters could rest. And here God is making it so, or including the animals and the servants, they can also rest one day in seven. So, again, the, the rights of the servants and that. Verse 13, and in all that I have said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. So Romans sixteen nineteen, be ignorant concerning evil, but wise to do good. Verse 14 to 16, Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I command you, at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. So these are the three main times that the people would come in. And this is the basic time frame. But we have public holidays. Well, this is their public holidays. The people of God were together, the people of Israel, We'll be together three times a year for the Feast of the Passover in the spring. And then 50 days later, you got the Feast of Harvest or Pentecost. And then in the autumn, you got the Feast of Ingathering or Tabernacles. So it's all about their produce. It's all about their agriculture. And one of the things there is that they shall not come empty-handed. They come ready to give. You know, there's people today who come to assembly, to church, not looking for something to get, but something to give. They come prayed up, prepared to worship, eager to give generously, and ready to reach out to someone. And those people, they really enrich the fellowship greatly. So you want to try and be like this. Just to finish this section off, three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. So we've been through the the lemon being a picture of sin, so I'm not going to do that again. That was in chapter 12. And verse 19, The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So, priorities. I'm going to stop at this verse. Priorities. You shall bring into the house of the Lord your God your first fruits. 
we know what our priorities are by what we do with our first fruits. The first, the tenth of what he gives us. Does our money rule us or do we rule our money? Are we putting God first or our own wants and desires? If we are giving generously to the church and others, it's not just to the church, but then we are demonstrating that we understand that God has first given us all these things and that they belong to him. And it's not just our money that God wants, it's our time and talents as well. So we need to be willing to give. Giving is not so the church can be rich, it's so you can be free. God doesn't need our money. It's not like God's poor. But God wants you to be free. God wants you to be free from the love of money and to enjoy the blessing of, of giving. So, Father, I just thank you for all these commands that you've given, Lord. They're wise. They're fair. Lord, they're not hard to understand. And living in that culture, it would have been pretty good. Probably better than our own culture with all the litigation. and It's kind of unfair. The people who do wrong seem to get off pretty easy, and the people who get hurt, they don't get off very easy at all. So I just... I thank you that you're a wise and fair God and I just pray that our country, our laws might change to be a bit more fair and we can use this concept of repaying what we've stolen of making good instead of just you know, putting people in prison because it seems a lot more wise and a lot more beneficial to the people. So I just pray that we can also do this in our personal lives when we hurt someone instead of saying oh, oh well, I'm sorry but we can actually be sorry by making it up We can give back what we've taken. We can restore what we've hurt. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.